After our meeting here, I had not seen Brother Todd Clifford in almost two years. We're coming up on two years since the last time we were. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, be with Brother Todd and listen to him preach, and so I've been really looking forward over the last year of having him come and hold this gospel meeting for us. Brother Todd is from Burleson, Alabama. We're not going to hold that against him. You know, I have to say this, I'm a little irritated with Todd. On Sunday, Todd quoted the Sermon on the Mount. And I told him I had the congregation convinced only an inspired speaker is able to quote more than one verse. And so he messed me up. Brother Todd is married to Rhonda. They have two children, Shelby and Jeffrey. They're grown. Shelby is married. Jeffrey's getting ready to get married. He's a 1988 graduate of Fried Hardeman University. He's a farmer. He's a good husband. He's a good father. He is a man of God and a wonderful preacher. And I am blessed to be able to call him my friend. And I've been looking forward to him coming and being here. I love Todd Clippard. And uh, uh, he is a great inspiration, encouragement, and example to me. And uh, I met him probably in 08, 07, somewhere around there. And ever since I've met him first, and he came to the Memphis School of Preaching while I was there, and he spoke in chapel one morning. And he impressed me then, and I continue to be impressed with him even unto this day. And so I know you will enjoy listening to Brother Clifford. Come speak to us, Brother. It is an honor and a privilege to be back before you tonight, and I'm thankful for all those that are visiting with us tonight, especially those that are gospel preachers. Uh, Brother Charles, you and I have some folks in common, as you probably well know. His daughter, Julie, is married to Drew Kaiser, and Drew is one of my very good friends, preaches for the Asheville Road Congregation in Leeds. Drew's father and I, Andy, have been friends for more than 20 years, very close, and so uh, I, I've uh, I've known Julie for uh, a number of years. Just love her and appreciate her. A great preacher's wife and helped me. Great mother, and that uh, is a great testimony to uh, the Cochran uh, family. Now, I want to know. I know we've got a lot of visitors here tonight, and so before I make my my opening statement, if you are a member of the White Oak Church of Christ, I want you to raise your hand. Okay. Now, all y'all need to repent. I didn't want to impugn our visitors. You know, the Bible talks about putting stumbling blocks in front of people. And there was about three tables full of stumbling blocks in that basement (laughs) yesterday after services. And then if that wasn't enough, Rick and his family and Bob and them take me out to eat last night... I had to run extra today just to try to get ahead of the game. So then I go to Rick's house tonight, and everything's fine. We've got grilled chicken, salad, baked potato, everything's just, just right. Then Nicole brings out this big bowl of chocolate sin, <laughs> topped with ice cream iniquity. And I wanted to say, get thee behind me, Satan. But Nicole's such a sweet soul, and I I didn't want to hurt her feelings. And so I went ahead and forced myself to eat it. I'm telling you. 
Uh, y'all have just uh, just filled my cup in so many ways thus far, and I uh, sincerely appreciate every kindness that has uh, been shown to me uh, since I arrived on Saturday evening. And again, to those that are visiting, especially my cousin Sandy, good to see her again tonight. Um, it's a shame that, that we don't see each other more than we do, uh, considering we just we grew up together. I mean. In the same town, all of us, all the, all the first cousins, we all close to the same age, went to the same school, went to the same church. You know, every holiday was spent together. And then, you know, you get older and you just kind of get away from one another. But so good, so good to see her again today. And, and uh, I'm, I just love her so much. Appreciate her and, and Eric uh, so much. And, and they mean a lot to me. And I want, want them to know that. Our subject matter tonight is the three pleas of the Church of Christ. Now, there are any number of pleas that that uh, that we might consider, and so I shouldn't say the three pleas, I'll just say three pleas of the Churches of Christ. In other words, there are a lot of people in the religious world that do not understand the Church of Christ. It's, it's amazing how much people think they know about the Church of Christ, and they really don't know anything about the church of Christ. And and when and when we do our best to diligently practice the things that are found in the New Testament, people don't understand it. And and when we don't associate in in ecumenical ways with other with other uh, religious institutions, for example, I don't know how many of, of you preachers here have been called to to uh, participate in 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 activities, but you know, in a little town like the one I live in or live outside of, you know, there's a national day of prayer and, you know, preachers from all different religious groups will come together and, and there's all types of things like that. And, and I get called almost, you know, almost every year and I have to decline because I, I can't give the impression that, can't give the impression that, that we're all standing on equal footing because I don't believe it. And a lot of times people get frustrated when they don't see us participating in things like that. And, and sometimes the question might just be asked, and I've preached this sermon under this heading, what is it that you Church of Christers want? You know, because that's, that's the mentality. You know, what is, you, know, you won't do this, you won't do this, you, you know, you're always talking about this, this, this. What is it that you want? And it's with that question in mind that we're going to pursue at least three things in our study tonight. And the first is this. What do we want? We want all men everywhere to accept the Bible as the rule and the limit of their faith. We want all men everywhere to accept the Bible as the rule and the limit of their faith. In November, I believe it was, of 1897, David Lipscomb penned a magnificent article in the Gospel Advocate titled, Serving God, Not Obeying Him. And he talked about the religious problems that were in existence in 1897, the religious division, and the division particularly that was about to explode among the Lord's people that eventually led to a formal division as recognized by the U.S. Census Bureau in 1906 between the Lord's Church and the Independent Christian Church. And for those of you that may not be familiar with church history, at that particular point in time, 
The Lord's church lost about 85% of its members. Over 1 million people, 1 million professed Christians, chose the idolatry of the instrument over fellowship with their brethren. And they divided from us. Now, back in about 2006, some that were a little bit leftward among us decided they'd make apologies on our behalf. But they didn't apologize for me. We didn't divide the church. They divided the church. And about a million of them left us and took about 35... By the way, did you know that the Lord's body used to have about 50... About 50 colleges and universities scattered around. And some of the most well-known universities in this country were, were faithful. Obviously, we, don't, we know a university is not a part of the church, but they were associated with the church. And some of the most well-known universities in this country were associated with the Lord's church. And they left and went with the instrumentalists and left about 135,000 who were faithful to the word of God. But it wasn't long until we were back over a million again. Because the resounding message was, you know, the Bible. Accept the Bible as the rule and limit of your faith. And Brother Lipscomb in his article said, There are many that would profess to to hold to the Bible as their rule of faith, but they will not make it the limit of their faith. And that's the case with many other Many other religious institutions. Because you can't be a member of a denomination just by using the Bible. It's got to be the Bible and something. Because you can't find the names of those, you can't find the names of those religious institutions in the Bible. So it has to be the Bible and something else. We want all men everywhere to accept the Bible as the rule and limit of their faith. No one can know. The mind of God, except as it has been revealed to us in the Bible. You know, David wrote, Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be innocent of the great transgression. Presumptuous sins. Sins of presumption. Anytime we embark on any act or, or uh, any act or any teaching, anything that we might do that we can't find in this book and authority for it in this book, it is a sin of presumption. It is to presume that God will be happy with it. But if God has not spoken to it in this book, we have no right or authority to offer that to Him. It reminds me of Exodus chapter 10 and verse number 26 where Moses is having a contention with the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says, well, just who is it that wants to go out in this wilderness, in this this period of, of, of worship that you keep talking about? And he says, we're going. He said, our wives are going, our children are going. And he says, well, he, he, the Pharaoh says, leave your livestock here. You can go and your little ones can go, but leave your livestock here. And Moses made this statement, and I think, you know, I never hear this statement preached. I never hear it made. I've never heard anybody cite it from the pulpit, but I want you to listen to what he says. He says, no, (laughs) but our livestock will go with us because we do not know what will be required of us until we get there. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Moses made no presumption as to what the Lord wanted. He didn't know, look, he didn't know what the Lord wanted. 
But he knew this. I'm going to take everything I've got with me so that whenever I get where the Lord wants me to go, I'll have exactly what I need. Pharaoh was none too happy with that. None too happy with that. But I love this statement. We won't know what the Lord wants until we get there. He would not presume to assume he knew what the Lord wanted. Reminds me also of the entrance into the promised land. As, as the ark and the priests were leading the way, and God says, the people said, you stand back from the priests and the ark, about, I think it was about 300 cubits, I think that was what it said, and watch, it says, because you have never been this way before. In other words, God said, you don't know where you're going. You've never been here before. I know where you're going. I'm leading you. You stand back and you watch and you follow these men from afar. You know, kind of like, you know, in my mind, I'm just, I'm just thinking about some of those old, uh, like Gomer Pyle or, or some, you know, some show uh, about the army and those guys are marching in line and some are the three stooges. You know, and somebody's walking and not paying attention, and the first one stops, and then it's like, boop, 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 boop. You know, you know, people just running into the back of the other. God says, we're not going to let that happen. You're going to stand back, and you're going to let me lead the way, and you're going to watch, and I'll get you where I want you to go. That's the concept of accepting the Bible as the rule and limit of one's faith. Again, nobody knows what God wants aside from what He has revealed to us in the book. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, These are the commandments and the statutes, the judgment of the Lord. It said, You shall not add to them, neither shall you diminish aught from them, that you might keep the commandments of the Lord. Do you, you figure that out? Don't add to it and don't take from it equals keeping it. If you add to it, that ain't keeping it. If you don't do something that's in it, that's not keeping it either. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Then you will be keeping the law of the Lord. And yet, and look, I understand that's an Old Testament passage, but the principles are still there. Colossians 3.17, we've got to do all in the name by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But how many people, you know, how many people are... Just not satisfied with what the Bible says. We're pleading with all men everywhere to accept the Bible as their own, as the rule and limit of their faith. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, the Bible teaches us that God, according to His divine power, has given us ALL things that pertain to life and godliness. ALL, all of them. That means nothing is outside the scope of the book that we need to know. I mean, 2 Timothy 3 teaches us that, verse 16. You know, every scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished, through and through furnished unto every good work. Now, every good work, that's pretty well all-inclusive, isn't it? That doesn't exclude any of them. Kind of like Acts 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, who's accepted from that? <laughs> Nobody. Well, if the Bible tells us that the Bible, if the Bible tells us that God's Word contains all that we need that pertains to life and godliness, and that through the writing of the Scriptures we have all that we need to make us complete to every good work, friend, why would anybody go outside the scope of this book? We plead with all men everywhere to accept the Bible as the rule and the limit of their faith. 
One more thing in this regard, and I'll move on to the next. The Bible is not the source of religious division. The Bible is not the source of religious division. And yet many people would accuse the Bible of being the source of, the, of religious division. They, they act like, number one, the Bible can't be understood. Or they act like the Bible's not intended to be understood. And that, that we're, just, we're just at liberty to, to draw our own conclusions. But that's where religious division comes. Nobody was ever divided on what the Bible said. Because the Bible says what it says. Paul told the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4 said, When you read, you'll understand my knowledge of the mystery. In other words, you read it, God has an intended meaning, and He expects us to ascertain that meaning and to obey it. The Bible is not the source of religious division. God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14, 40. His word is truth, John 17, 17. The sum of thy word is truth, Psalm 119 and 160. And we're commanded to speak the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Be perfectly joined together. Same mind, same judgment. No divisions among us. The only way to do that is to abide by the Scriptures. To abide by the Scriptures. I'll give you two instances. The actually, this is not preacher stories. These things actually happen. I went to my twenty-year went to my twenty-year high school reunion. I was talking with a couple of my friends. One of them was Roman Catholic, and one of them was a Methodist who had converted to Roman Catholicism because he had married a Roman Catholic. And I'd been preaching for some time at, at that point in time, and and we got together before the event, and and we were just sitting, catching up, visiting, hadn't seen one another in a while, and and um, and one of them said. Uh, how is it, how is it that you ended up where you are and you've stayed there as long as you have? And I said, well, the, you know, the elders of the church called me and asked me if I was interested in the, the work and, and, and I went down and talked with them and we were in agreement and they asked me to come work with them and they've not asked me to leave and I've had no desire to leave and I've just stayed. And they said, well, well, how do y'all, how do y'all hold together like you do? You know, how, you know, how is it, you know, because they knew I'd been raised in the church there in Dexter, Missouri, and, and here I am now, I'm in Alabama, and there's no hierarchy. You know, there's nobody, you know, there's nobody pointing a man here and a man there. And they said, how do you, how do, you do that? I said, man, I said, it's easy. I said, we just go by what the Bible says. You know, when I do what the Bible says in Dexter, Missouri, and somebody in Hamilton, Alabama does what the Bible says, we're all on the same page, whether or not we even know one another exists. So that's how you do it. And the guy goes, that's amazing. I said, not really. I said, it's just, I said, it's just like when you, when you play baseball or any other sport, there's a rule book. And you're not going to argue about, you know, you're not going to argue about how far the pitcher's mound is supposed to be from home plate. You're not going to argue about how far the bases are supposed to be spread out. You're not going to argue about how far the fences are to be set up. You're not going to argue about how many, you know, how many innings a, a, a person can throw in a certain period of time. We're not going to argue about those things because anytime there's any kind of a discrepancy, you just go to the rule book and the rule book settles it. 
So now the Bible's not necessarily a rule book, but that's our attitude about it. And if there's ever a question, the Bible settles the matter. You know, my wife had the same thing happen to her at her 20 year anniversary. Her 20 year anniversary came before mine. And she was visiting with one of her friends that she hadn't seen in a long time. And her friend was talking to her that she was a member of some, what she called a non-denominational church. And, and, uh, and, and Rhonda was telling her about that I was a preacher. And, and she said, well, what, she goes, well, what kind of, you know, what kind of doctrine do y'all have? And Rhonda said, we just go by the New Testament. Said everything we do, everything we say, everything we teach, everything we practice, all we go by is the New Testament. We don't have any creed books or confessions or, church manuals or or anything like that we just go by the new testament you know what that girl said she was just amazed she goes what a novel idea what a novel idea you know so many people just don't even have the concept that the bible is all that you need and yet that's exactly all you need you know as brother tom warren you say the bible only makes christians only and only christians the Bible is all we need. The Bible says it's all we need. Why not just let the Bible settle the matter, be the rule and limit of our faith? Now, I'm going to give you a quick illustration. I got this from John Shannon Sr. Now, you want to talk about a man that can preach a hole in the floor. John Shannon Sr. can do it. He's a preacher of the James Road Church in the north part of the uh, downtown area of Memphis, Tennessee. That man can preach. I heard him preach a sermon. About, that thing was nearly an hour long. And the title of that sermon was called, Where Did You Learn That? And he had this illustration, and it reminded me, and I'm going to borrow from that idea, but give you, give you how this happened to me. Now, my dad was a very smart man. He was an engineer. He worked for Chrysler for a number of years in St. Louis. When he retired, he was a he was a uh, uh, he was an independent engineer. Worked for a number of different companies as uh, you know as an independent contractor. But he couldn't spell a lick. Guess you don't have to learn to spell to be an engineer. All right. Well, when I was a kid, and we had this piece of paper at my house for years and years, and I don't know. Maybe my mom still got it. I don't know. But when I was a youngster, I asked my dad one time how to spell elephant. Dad, how do you spell elephant? And he wrote it down for me. E-L-A-P-H-A-N-T. Elephant. Now, what if I had carried that to school the next day? And elephant had been on the spelling test. And I spelled it just like my dad did. But I got it right. I got it wrong. What if I told the teacher? What if I had pulled that piece of paper out? And choked, look here, Miss Teacher. My dad wrote this last night. This is how you spell elephant. Then she's going to go over and she's going to pull out Webster's. Because the dictionary is the final authority in matters of spelling words. E-L-A-P-H-A-N-T. Where did you learn that? Well, I learned it from my dad. Don't make it right. A few years ago, I decided since my wife quit, I'd start cooking some. <laughs> and so I learned, try to learn how to make a few things. And, uh, you know, and I, you know, and I watched my grandma cook, my mother cook, and, you know, and I, you know, they didn't, they didn't measure out nothing. You 
that didn't measure out nothing. But I knew better than that. So I got ready to make something and, and uh, it called for it called for a tablespoon or something or other. I don't remember what it was, don't matter. But I didn't have a tablespoon handy. So I got to looking and I said, you know what? That teaspoon right there looks about like a half of a tablespoon. About right, ain't it? Everybody knows there's two teaspoons in a tablespoon, right? There's two teaspoons and just look at them. You figure it out. But then I decided, you know what? I might ought to ask Mr. Google. Because Mr. Google knows a lot. And I looked it up and guess what I learned? There's three teaspoons. You can't trust your eyeballs. But what if I just what if I'd have gone on and went with two tablespoons? Because it looked right. It seemed right. My eyes were telling me it's right. Would have been right. Where did you learn that? Well, I don't know. That's what I just thought was right. Does it make it right? Well, no. No, you can open up any cookbook and it's going to have the conversion tables in there, right? It's going to have the, you know, what equals this and what equals that. And sure enough, I found an old cookbook and, and there it was. One tablespoon is three teaspoons. Just like the, you know, just like the internet told me it was. Where did you learn that? You know, there, there, that, that's an interesting question that we ought to ask a lot of people in religious discussions. Where did you learn that? Talking to a sweet lady outside of Las Vegas, Nevada this morning, uh, a fairly recent convert, and she told me about listening to a gospel preacher on the radio, and that just sounded, just it struck her. And she called him, and she was asking him some questions. He'd said something about baptism, and she said, well, she says, uh, the church I go to baptizes babies. And he said, that's interesting. He said, I would love to hear from you more about that. He said, do me a favor and open up your Bible and find me some verses to help me. Because he goes, we don't practice that. He said, help me understand the practice of infant baptism. We had this conversation today, this lady and I. And I, of course, I'd heard the story before. But she said, he was setting me up and I didn't even know it. She said, I got my Bible out, and I hunted, and I searched, and I hunted, and I searched, and I couldn't find a word in my Bible about infant baptism. And she knew she had, but where did you learn that? You know, think about all the, where did you learn to baptize babies? Where did you learn that, that man is saved by faith only? Where did you learn that? You know, where did you learn that one man is to be the, or worse still, woman is to be the, 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 pa- the pastor over a church? Where did you learn that? That's a, that's a completely and perfectly valid question. Where did you learn that? Now, if it didn't come from here, if it didn't come from here, you might want to look a little closer. Number two. Not only do we plead with all men everywhere to accept the Bible as the rule and limit of their faith, we plead with all men everywhere to accept the church that Jesus built. You know, so many people in the religious world today are sheep stealers. They're always trying to convince people to come to their church. You know, our church is better. Our church has this. Our church is doing that. And 
And, and by the way, when I was growing up in Dexter, Missouri, about every few years, there's just kind of this flock of people that, that they'd be this for a little while, and then maybe some new preacher would come into town at, at this religious group, and all of a sudden there are people, they gravitate over there for a little while. And in that church, man, they're blowing and going. And then about five minutes later, we'll have, you know, over here. You know, we're over here. And, and there was all, the whole time I was growing up, the, the, no, this is the truth. The whole time I was growing up, about every four or five years, there was a different church that was really getting after it. Really getting after it. Really, really growing and prospering. But five years later, back where they were before, and the floaters had gone somewhere else. Look, folks, we're not pleading for my church over your church. I don't have a church. Now, sometimes I catch myself saying, I might catch myself saying our church or whatnot. And we speak, we, I think it's okay for us to speak accommodatively sometimes. But the truth of the matter is, there's not a one of us here who got a church. And if you do, you need to give it up. If you got one, get out of it. We plead with all men everywhere to accept the church that Jesus built. Jesus said, I'll build my church, Matthew 16, 18. Singular. We talked about this yesterday. There's one head and there's one body. And that body is the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Colossians 1 and verse 18. The church is the kingdom of God. And it's the kingdom of God that Jesus is going to come back and save in 1 Corinthians 13, 15, 23 and 24. I'm not pleading for my church over your church or this church over that church. Friends, we're pleading for the Lord's church. Because He's the only one that has a church that's going to be saved in the day of judgment. He's the only one that's got a church, a church, the church, which is purchased with His own blood. Acts 20 and verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and over all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which He's purchased with His own blood. The Lord's church called the church of God, the churches of Christ. The assembly of the firstborn. Any number of, of names or monikers are attached to it in the New Testament. We just simply identify ourselves as the church of Christ for purposes of recognition. That's not the name that the church has to have. It just means the church that belongs to Christ. We could be called the church of God, but it would be confusing, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. If we decided it would be perfectly fine to put the name church of God on this building. But it sure would be confusing. Why? Because there's already a group out there that calls them. As a matter of fact, there's more than one group out there that calls themselves that. Some of them are identified out of Cleveland, Tennessee, and some of them are identified out of somewhere in Indiana. And, I mean, so we don't go by that name. It's a, it's a perfectly good name, but it causes confusion. So when we talk about the Church of Christ, we're not talking about a. We're, we're not saying we're not saying we're the best denomination. That's not what we're saying. That our denomination is better than your denomination. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that the Lord came and established one church. And when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're saved by the grace of God, He adds you to that church and no other church. Acts 2 and verse number 47. At 41, they were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls, those that had been baptized. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. Acts 2 and verse 47. 
We plead with all men that were to accept the church that Jesus built. Number three. We plead with all men everywhere to accept God's conditions of salvation. I was reading a book by a man, and now his name now his name escapes me. He wrote a book. Oh, D. A. Carson. D. A. Carson wrote a book on the King James only controversy. And in that book, by the way, which is a very good book. Now, D. A. Carson's a Calvinist. All right, but. And you just have to understand that from the outset. Which is interesting based on what I'm fixing to tell you about what he wrote. But Carson, in that book, uh, the King James Only Controversy, had a little blurb about being a young preacher when he was a young preacher. And he was riding in a car with an older preacher. Carson was a very, is and was at that time, at, even at that time, a very highly educated man. I mean, he was a he was a, a, a linguist. You know, he he knew the biblical language. He knew the the Greek constructs and all of those things. He was a, he was a, a Bible scholar, I guess we might say. And this older gentleman was making some point about the Bible that was based on a bad rendering in the King James version of the Bible. And Carson knew it, so Carson tried to kind of gently inject some things into the man's argument to show him that it really wasn't what he said because what he said was based on a bad rendering of the Bible. And the first thing that older preacher did was he went straight to the Holy Spirit enlightenment argument. And he said, what do you mean by that? All of your denominational friends believe that you've got to have a direct help from the Holy Spirit to understand the Scriptures. They may not say that, but they believe that. Their preachers believe that. Their preachers teach that. But what amazed me was that Carson didn't see the inconsistency of him correcting a man who claimed Holy Spirit enlightenment. And yet Carson teaches Holy Spirit enlightenment. I see some of you nodding your head. You're starting to put it together, aren't you? Now think about this. Am I pointing the right way up the street? This way. Up the street. You go to the next building, church building, right this way, and the man that stands in that pulpit claims Holy Spirit enlightenment. Alright, it's a woman. Which is even more problematic. You go to the next one, And whoever it is in that pulpit claims Holy Spirit enlightenment. And yet, those two don't teach anything remotely akin to one another. On all kinds of doctrines. Now, are we seeing the problem with that? And and by the way, if there was a fourth church up the street, the fourth one would be in the same boat as the other two. And they all teach something different about how God saves the souls of men from sin. And they all claim to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Now as best I can tell from reading my Bible, the message that Jesus got came from His Father. It didn't originate with Him. He said, He that rejected me and received not my words has one that judges Him. The word I have spoken, the same will judge Him in the last day, for I have not spoken of Myself. 
But my Father who sent me, He told me what I should say and what I should speak. So therefore, I understand right out of the box what Jesus taught and what His Father taught are the exact same thing. And then Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and He's going to bring into your remembrance everything that I've taught you. And then the Father's going to teach Him the rest of the stuff that I hadn't had a chance to teach you. That tells me that what the Father taught and what the Spirit taught or what the Son taught and what the Spirit taught was all the same thing. And then in John 17, Jesus said that the apostles are to be one even as Jesus and His Father are one. John 17, 9-11. So that means that all of the twelve apostles taught the same thing. Isn't that right? Now, everybody that the apostles taught, what did they believe? Same thing. And what do those people teach? The same thing. And then you get 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, where Paul says, or in Galatians 1, where Paul says, The gospel that I taught is not from man, neither was I taught it by man, but I was given it by revelation of Jesus Christ. So therefore, what the apostles taught and what the apostle Paul taught all came from the same source, so it had to be the same thing. Then in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, Paul said, The things that you've seen and heard and learned from me commit the same, get that, commit the same to faithful men that they may teach others also. So Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others all teaching what? Same thing. In other words, all these spirit-guided teachers are all teaching the what? Same thing. Same thing. They all taught the same thing about how man's saved from sin. They all taught the same thing about how men ought to worship. They all taught the same thing about how the church ought to be organized. They all taught the same thing about apostasy. They all taught the same thing about God's order in the church and His order in the home. They taught the same thing right down the line. And yet you've got this bunch out here all claiming to be guided by the Holy Spirit and all teaching different things. Listen, anybody that can see through a ladder can see that that ain't right. It's just that simple. Look, we plead with all men everywhere to accept God's conditions of salvation. The things that we can find in the book. The Bible says we got to believe in God. we got to have faith in God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that would come to God must believe that He is. And He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We must hear the Word of God from the parable of the sower. Mark chapter 4, uh, Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 13. Because faith comes by hearing. Romans 10 and verse number 17. we got to hear God's Word because only God's Word produces faith. John 20, verse 30 and 31. And truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are what? They're written. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. It's written that you might believe. Written that you might believe. There's no source of faith outside of those things that are written. 
And based on that faith that comes from reading God's book and understanding God's book, we repent of our sins. As we noted already in Acts 17, 30 and 31, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because He has appointed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained and hath given assurance unto all men that He's raised Him from the dead. We repent in view of the coming of Christ and the judgment of Christ. And based on our repentance, we confess our faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, as Paul said the Romans did in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And as Jesus said we must in Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, we have to confess our faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, for confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10, verse 10. And then we've got to be baptized, immersed in water in order to receive the remission of sins. If there was ever a word that ought not ever appeared in our Bible, it's the word baptism. Somebody should have translated that word a long time ago. It might have avoided a lot of religious confusion. That word means immerse. It don't mean sprinkle. It don't mean pour. It don't mean nothing but submersion. And baptism is submersion in water. In order to receive the remission of sins. Acts 2 and verse number 38. It is an immersion in water in order to be saved. Mark 16 and verse 16. It is a submersion in water in order to be cleansed or washed from our sins. Acts 22 and verse number 16. Why do you wait? Arise and be baptized. Be immersed and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. That's why we, it's pictured as a burial in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that as many of us as were immersed into Christ, were immersed into His death, therefore we are, we are buried with Him by immersion into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we'll also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Baptism, that word that ought never have appeared in the Bible. It should have been translated. It's immersion. It's an immersion in water. In faith in the Word of God. It's not an act of man. It's not, it's not a deed of merit. It's an appeal to God for a pure conscience. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. It's a, a burial whereby we are raised in faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 12. Baptism or immersion is a work of God. We don't have faith in baptism. We have faith in the God who commanded baptism. And only in baptism do we contact the blood of Christ which was shed at His death. Again, we are immersed into His death. Romans 6, 3 and 4. That's where His blood was shed. And that's the only thing that cleanses us from our sins is the blood of Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Hebrews 9 verse 22. And He washed us from our sins in His own blood. Revelation 1 and verse 5. And it is through that process, friends, that we are saved and justified by the grace of God. Titus 3 and verse 7. According to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration. 
and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He shed forth abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that being justified by His grace. You want to be a participant in the grace of God? Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that He's the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Him before men. And be immersed in water in order to receive the remission of your sins. And then walk in the light. Walk according to the Word of God. 1 John 1 verse 7, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, there's the security of the believer. We believe in the security of the believer. Amen? Amen. But we don't believe in the unconditional security of the believer. Amen? The security of the believer is found in 1 John 1 verse 7. That we walk in the light, that means we'll even sin after we become Christians. But the blood of Christ will keep on cleansing us. And we become aware of those sins and those shortcomings. 1 John 1 and verse 9 says, If we'll confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the plea of the church. Accept the Bible as the rule and limit of your faith. Accept the church that Jesus came and built. And accept God's conditions of salvation. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Examine yourself. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. I can't answer the question for you. The person sitting next to you can't answer the question for you. The question that every one of us must answer for himself or herself is, Am I in the faith? Am I in the grace of God? And if you have any questions about where you stand tonight, or if you know that you stand in a position outside of the covenant and the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, then we plead with you right now, please come as together we stand and sing this song together.